0: Chapter? Are we on? Uh, we're going to be in chapter one as <laughs> we enter into the study of the prophet Jonah. Uh, last week in the introduction we learned that Jonah, whose Hebrew name is Jonah, um, he grew up in the in the northern portion of um, the nation of Israel, but the ten rebel tribes that broke off of Judah and uh, moved away from the direct worship of of Yahweh. Um, now, in that nation, they perceived themselves as being God's people, and they. But it was sort of uh, by by name only. You know, we're we're Yahweh's people, sort of. But we worship over there at the golden calves. Um, and they had um, Jeroboam, who had was their first king, had set those two golden calves—one at the northern border, one at the. Southern border to divert Israelites away from Jerusalem, away from worship in the Solomon's Temple, away from from uh, tithes and offerings and 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 worship of Yahweh. Uh, <clears throat> so God had had called on Jonah to um, prophesy just prior to the reign of Jeroboam the second, and his reign began in seven ninety three B.C. Uh, and so. Um, what Jonah had been told to deliver to Satan regarding Israel was that uh, the borders of the of Israel, the ten northern tribes, are going to expand outwards to the to the place where they had been during the time of Solomon. Uh, that prophecy came to pass, um, but all during that time, the rise of the Neo Assyrians they they were a plague on Israel. And finally, they lost a major battle in 900 BC. And that meant that they were going to be a vassal nation, a tribute-paying nation to Assyria. Uh, the Assyrian people were brutal. They were warlike. They practiced a scorched-earth policy of, con- of conquest. Um, but their, their expansion stumbled when um, their king, Adad-Nirari III, he died... And there was this power vacuum, and the mountain tribes uh, to the north of Nineveh uh, just created a mess for the Assyrians. Um, they, they fought guerrilla style. They, they would strike and disappear into the mountains. And so for years, um, the Assyrians were sort of concerned with their immediate problems internally, and they could ignore Israel and the expansion to the south. <clears throat> um and it was during that period of time that God came to Jonah and urged on him the message: "Get yourself to Nineveh and proclaim my judgment um, on that on that city." <clears throat> so let's pray. Lord God, uh, we're cast back some eight hundred years before the birth of Christ as we begin to seek to understand how you related to your nation Israel, even though they were in rebellion, Uh, how you related to your prophet Jonah, even when he's in rebellion, and to the Gentile nation of Assyria, who don't know you at all. So we too are surrounded by a vast array of peoples who do not believe in you or trust in Jesus as Savior, and it shows in their lives and their worldviews. Now, the Apostle Paul had told the church in Philippi to shine like stars in the dark sky. And we would do that as well. We would be the light and life to those who know you not. Take us by your hand, Lord, and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for its for excuse me for their wickedness has come up before me so there's some speculation that Jonah had been part of the school of prophets led by Elisha but that speculation doesn't line up with the dates uh, but he was somehow equipped as a prophet vetted as a prophet <clears throat> nevertheless the word of the lord comes to him and It says, you go 550 miles northeast on foot um, up through the basin, you know, the Sea of Galilee, over the Golan Heights, out through Damascus, through Haran, and out to Nineveh. That's a long walk. On arrival, Jonah was to cry out against the wickedness of that great city in the name of Yahweh. Now, where else in Scripture... Is there a city whose wickedness has come up before the Lord so that he himself uh, gets, in, he intervenes. He just gets into it. Do you remember what that was? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. That gives you an, a, an <laughs> idea of how bad things were in Nineveh, okay? So during that time period, just as Jonah was, had previously prophesied, the borders of Israel were expanding outward. That nation of Israel prospered, even though it was a vassal state to the Assyrians. um, And um, Assyria was hated by Israel. Uh, There was a sense of exclusivity, of being Yahweh's nation, even though they were not worshiping him. Uh, It gave the Hebrews there an exclusivist outlook. All others were Gentiles. All others lived wicked lives. All others were doomed. This was a form of Jewish nationalism. Jonah knew enough of Yahweh to know that God would forgive Nineveh if they repented. And that was part of the teaching through through the the rabbis and other Jewish history called uh, Teshuvah. That God would forgive if you repented. Now, the last thing, the last thing that Jonah wanted was for Nineveh with its close to, to 100,000 souls to repent for their wickedness. Jonah wanted Assyria destroyed. And given their brutal history, to have a Hebrew prophet appear in Nineveh to call them to repent, that was a death sentence for Jonah. At least he perceived it that way, and he was having none of it. So instead of walking northeast to Nineveh, Jonah turns the opposite direction. He goes southeast, southwest, excuse me, southwest to the seaport of Joppa. Now, uh, Israel and, and Judah, they, they weren't sea people. They were sort of cut off from the coast by the Philistines to the south and the Phoenicians to the north. Now, there was a little, little patch where, in Joppa, and a little patch in, in what's called today's... Be Haifa, where they could actually have seaports, but they weren't a trading nation. They didn't do a lot of, of, tra- you know, of, of dealing with other nations but by means of the sea. Okay? And he takes this journey of about 50 miles, and his goal was to get as far away from Nineveh as he could get. If he could do so, perhaps judgment would fall on Nineveh anyway without his proclamation. His target was Tarshish, which was a Phoenician colony on the east coast of Spain. That's 2,500 miles west. That's the other end of the Mediterranean. And it had been founded by one of the grandsons of Noah. And it had been a trade site during the the reign of Solomon. To get there quickly, Jonah hires a ship. Literally, he paid the whole fare. That's what the sense of the text was. He chartered a boat. Now it was all, it was already going to, to Tarshish and it had cargo aboard. But he just he just paid for everybody, you know, handed over, you know, when he left when he left uh, <clears throat> um, Gath Hefer, which was his hometown. He probably took everything he had. He was leaving. He had his life savings, and he dumped it in the hand of the of the the captain aboard this ship. And he got in the ship and went down in it as they were departing. So shipping on the Mediterranean was largely done by Phoenicians. They're, they were a people group that uh, were um, somewhat related by language and by culture to the Hebrews, but they didn't worship the same gods at all. And they uh, they controlled the sea from north of Lebanon to down to Tyre and Sidon. And historically, they were the ones who who were sailors. They were the ones who traded uh, all, all over the, the Mediterranean. In the Ohio River Valley, they found stone steely, stone markers, with ogam script cut into the stone. And they, they credit those stone carvings to Phoenician explorers, which tells you how far west they were willing to... to you know the sail. That's U.S. Okay. Ohio. Yes. Wow. Yes. So the ships of that ancient area era, uh, era were—they uh, averaged about seventy-five feet long, okay, twenty feet wide, and they had a round bottom. There wasn't much of a keel, okay, which—and they had—they um, were um, controlled by a rudder that was mounted on the left. Um, rear of the of the uh, of the boat so for landlubbers uh, that works but if you're going to be a uh, a sailor uh, you have to recognize that you know that it was really on the port side and the stern is the back of the boat okay so there was a steering platform where somebody had to control the rudder post in the back Uh, they were sail powered they had modest masts there were square-rigged sails, and essentially they went wherever the wind blew, and they kind of tried to control that with the rudder. <clears throat> um, in a favorable wind, they were sort of tub-like ships. They just sort of s- got skated along the surface, um, and they could maybe do five miles an hour. So in the Mediterranean, there was a sailing season, and ships who were heading west, like to Tarshish, they had to sail in a counterclockwise direction. Because that's the direction where the wind, if you sailed, you know, you to pick up the right wind and to pick up the right currents, you had to go to the north. And so when that ship left Joppa, it turned right. It went north, up the coast, because they were trying to pick up those currents and pick up those winds. So when they would sail, they were planning on sailing then along, you know, probably even within sight of land, you know, they, they were not... Whoa, strike out into the deep and go. They, they wanted to keep land kind of in sight. And so they would have gone along the southern coast of Asia Minor and then through the Greek Isles and then past Italy and then you know, to the modern coast of southern France sort of thing and around the corner finally make it to Spain. You know, they, weren't, they weren't doing straight line stuff up the middle of the Mediterranean. <clears throat> Verses 4 to 9 gives us the narrative of the great storm that rushed upon the ship. It says, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up! Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so we will not perish. And every man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I love, excuse me, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So, as I mentioned, there was a sailing season in the Mediterranean. Violent winter winds would blow, some, it was an event called the Euclidon. It was a violent Fierce winter wind that would roar out of the northeast, the north and the northeast. And, and basically, it, to sail during that season was only for the bravest of, of sailors uh, because you couldn't sail across it. You basically got pushed ahead of it and you just hoped that you wouldn't be blown onto the North African coast and wrecked. So during the period of time in the New Testament, in Acts 27, Paul is aboard a ship that, he, that he's in, in custody and he's being taken to Rome for his appeal to Caesar and such a Euclidon comes up and, and for two weeks they can't see the sun. It's totally, uh, totally um, overcast and, and horribly windy and they're driven up onto an island. The, the ship is wrecked, but everybody survives. Okay, so, but this isn't winter. This storm that comes against this ship that Jonah's in is not a winter storm. It's a total surprise to the sailors because that doesn't happen in this season. Okay? And they rightly identified it as a calamity that was about to destroy their ship and drown them. So verse 5 says that each man cried out to his God. Now, given that the sailors and the captain were very likely Phoenicians, they were worshipers of Baal. 250 miles north of Joppa, is the city of Ugarit, where there was a lighthouse right on the coast that had doubled as a temple for Baal Shamem. And excavated, uh, excavation of those ruins of that lighthouse and that temple, uh, they found 17 anchor stones, these gigantic, you know, they were just rocks that had a hole bored through them and they were tied on. That was the anchor. But they found 17 of them, clearly pointing out that the worship. By sailors of Baal at that site, for to them, Baal was the god who controlled the sea. The captain and the sailors aboard Jonah's charter ship were crying out to their god, likely Baal, but nothing changed. The next step of desperation for them to survive was for them to seize the cargo from the hold and throw it overboard to lighten the ship. That didn't work either. The storm continued unabated. And, you know, they go and wake up Jonah, but Jonah does not cry out to Yahweh in the middle of the storm because he's still fleeing from this God of his. Now, thirdly, the sailors got together to cast lots (coughs) to divine whose fault it was that this evil storm had fallen on them. Now, the casting of lots was really common through the Old Testament. If you had two warring parties that were arguing over you know uh, lot lines or you know uh, a contract or something like that and they couldn't dissolve they couldn't resolve it then they would cast lots and it usually happened in times when there wasn't enough information from God so they would cast lots to figure out okay we're gonna need a, point, a way to go in the New Testament the execution squad on Golgotha cast lots for the robes of Jesus and the disciples cast lots to determine a replacement For Judas Iscariot to be one of their midst. Now the latter immediately predates the coming of the Holy Spirit. Who guides us and leads us on casting lots. Went out the window. Now here in the midst of the storm, the lot fell on Jonah. Exposing him as the source of some God's displeasure. Now the sailors turn on Jonah and demand an answer. And the essence of what they're asking him is, What are you doing on this ship? And then Jonah answered them that he was a Hebrew and stated that he feared the Lord God. So that's Yahweh Elohim, the mighty God. And he's identified as God of heaven and the creator of the sea and dry land. Now, uh, was Jonah simply rehearsing doctrine back to the sailors, he would not cried out to Yahweh during the storm. So you have to question is, was he still trying to hide, thinking that if I don't pray, then God won't know where I am? Now, obviously, Jonah knew Yahweh and had been his servant and prophesied to Israel, but that's 15 years previous. Were his answers to the sailors just wrote, just memorized beliefs upon which he did not rely? Was he just a Sabbath school graduate who walked away from Yahweh's presence for years at a time? So ask Jonah when you see him soon. Help him sort that out. The sailors believed that Jonah's evil choices had brought this horrendous storm on them all. His claim to fear and reverence the God of heavens and the creator of dry land and sea lifted Jonah's God high above Baal Shemem, who just controlled the sea. It is as if Jonah remained existentially separated from this God that he feared, but it had a profound impact on the crew, on the sailors. They were terrified. Verses 10 to 14 shows the crew's response. It says, Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So they said to him, why should we, what should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land. So they could, but they could not. For... The sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord. Who is calling on the Lord here? It's the crew. Okay, they call on the Lord and say, Earnestly pray, O Lord. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So, fleeing from the God of heaven the maker of land and sea was inconceivable to the sailors. Sailors may have been Sicilian. Who was the character in the Princess Bride? Inconceivable! How could you do this? It was clear to them that Yahweh knew exactly where Jonah was, even hiding down in the ship, even trying to flee to Tarshish. The sailors' knowledge of God was increasing. In their ancient worship of the Phoenician pantheon, they knew that when somebody violated their relationship with Baal, Astarte, Melkart, or Yom, and any of the other in the pantheon, there needed to be restitution and appeasement. That's how they lived their relationship with those godlings who weren't God. The sailors directly asked Jonah what they should do to him to calm the storm. Jonah's answer is astonishing. Essentially, he said, hand me over to my God. Jonah knew that God would not snatch away the lives of the sailors on behalf of his sin. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. He would rather drown than obey God. Instead of taking Jonah's arms and throwing him into the sea, the sailors began to frantically try to row the ship toward the shore. That tells us the direction of the wind. It's coming hard out of the east. okay And they're trying desperately to turn right and get back to the shore. It doesn't work. It does not work for the storm only increased against their efforts. And finally, recognizing the futility of their prayers to the Phoenician gods, lightening the ship by dumping the cargo overboard and desperately rowing towards shore, the crew prays to Yahweh by name, appealing to him that they not perish. On account of Joseph's life, uh, Jonah's life, and choice and choices. <clears throat> Further, they pled that when they acted to cast Jonah into the sea, that they would not be charged with murder, since God was doing what He pleased by sending and sustaining the storm. Verses fifteen and sixteen are the climax of the learning curve for the sailors of who was really in charge of the storm. So they took up Jonah, cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Mm-hmm. So where else in scripture do you see that instant cessation of a storm? Boat, stand up and vote. Jesus still. Yeah, on well, the Sea of Galilee, okay? The, the Jesus and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, And he's asleep. And a raging wind comes roaring over the spine of Israel from the Mediterranean and dives into the bowl of the Sea of Galilee, which was not an extraordinary event. That happened fairly regularly. Um, And they were unpredictable. Um, But in that process of dropping um, the wind into this Bowl where the Sea of Galilee was, the River Galilee there, that was below sea level and it produced a, a, a huge drop in barometric pressure. And so you get vast wind and raging waves suddenly. And the boat was filling up and the disciples finally shake Jesus and say, don't you care that we're going to perish? He stands up. And what does he do? He says, you be muzzled, is literally the text. You shut up. You be silenced to the wind and to the waves. And instantly, the waves and the, and the, and the wind stop. That terrifies the disciples. Who is this that has a command over the wind and the waves? So fear and worship are appropriate responses when God does the miraculous for us. Mm -hmm. All right, Forge family, have you ever been so put out at God for things you believed that for sure God was going to do, but he did not do, that you turned 180 degrees and moved away from him? It can be really hard to swallow that God is not committed to your will. But rather to his and his timing. Now think about that for a moment. How little we understand him, but how much he has made known to us of his love for all mankind and his desire that none should perish without the the knowledge of him. Now, Yahweh's love was demonstrated for Ruth, the Moabitess, for Naaman. The Assyrian general who had leprosy, he sneers at the servant of, of uh, a prophet, and who when he is told to go down to the Jordan River and wash, and finally he does it and he's healed. God's love is demonstrated to the Roman centurion whose servant was dying. Now here's three non-Hebrews, non-believers who trusted in God and obeyed His words. Now remember, Yahweh uses empires and nations to accomplish his will and his prophecies. Now, in our study of the book of Daniel, we saw God at work in Nebuchadnezzar, in Cyrus the Mede, even in spite of Belshazzar's, you know, the handwriting on the wall thing. Jonah's writing predates the captivity of, of Judah by Babylon by nearly 200 years. This nation we live in is 240 years old and we have been mightily blessed. But how many are turning away to follow pseudoscience? Some the new age teaching that we, each of us, is a God. And as such, we can go our own way. No one will see, no one will care. We can do what we like. That stand against God Himself and His scripture will bring judgment or the threat thereof, we, like Nineveh, need a divine warning to repent, to be revived, to be awakened. Now, God has not forgotten Jonah, and we will pick up that account next time. So let's pray. Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we are those who believe you know us intimately. You know what drives us and hinders us, makes us vulnerable, but you never back away from us. You pursue us with your love and grace. Thank you, Lord, for reaching out through the ages and drawing us to yourself as sons and daughters. We're still learning your ways, and we want to be obedient. We cry out for our nation, Please, Lord God, we bow on behalf of America. We renounce her wickedness and repent for our own missing the mark. Come, Holy Spirit, break forth with newness of life in Christ. We trust you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.